Hi everybody, I'm Sess Busby, editor of Flying Solo. Welcome to our weekly podcast where we step inside the minds and lives of soloists and small business owners. Today's guest is Cynthia Deeran. If you're thinking of expanding your business internationally, Cynthia should be your go-to for advice. She's one of Australia's foremost experts on international markets and she's recently put all her knowledge into a book, Business Beyond Borders, to show Aussie business owners how they can take advantage of the international marketplace and carve out a place on the worldwide stage. Hi, Cynthia. Thanks so much for joining me on the show today. Great to be here. Now, before COVID, so many Aussie businesses didn't even have a website and then the pandemic kind of came along and it forced everyone to embrace digital technology to survive. So I'm what I'm wondering, I guess, is since now they've dipped their toe into e-commerce finally on a local sense, is it time that they should actually be thinking also about expanding their business to a global marketplace as well? Oh, look, I think, you know, if you have aspirations to uh, make a lot of money, make a big impact on the world and create a business for yourself that lets you, you know, have the freedom and the life you want, yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, if you are based in a small market or even a medium-sized market like Australia, um, you cap out at a an absolute maximum total of 25 million people that you can sell to. And that's even if you sell something like toothpaste, which absolutely everybody needs. So, you know, for most companies, uh, especially those selling a niche product, there are going to be far fewer consumers than 25 million and they're not all going to want what you sell. So you're limited by geography. So, look, I think for anybody who wants to do something um, big and and impactful, yeah, you have to be looking further than your own backyard. So what are the signs that your business might be ripe for international expansion? Look, it kind of depends. The answer really is it depends because um, obviously if you run uh, a service business that does some kind of consulting, maybe it's architecture or law or maybe it's even medical consulting, you're going to have a very different cost structure and very different method of providing services than if you sell soy candles or, you know, bikinis or, I don't know, sparkly jewellery that you can easily just put into a post pack or a box and send overseas. So let's think about the second example first. Let's imagine that you've got a consumer product, you know, something that goes B2C, something that goes from your business straight to somebody's home that they use for uh, some kind of personal context. You can basically start operating an e-commerce business overseas the moment you get started. There's no, you know, there's really no, um, the barriers to entry are very, very low. You know, you can get on uh, a platform like Shopify or Amazon or Etsy, depending on what you sell, and you can just start reaching people all over the world, and that's not really a problem. But if you don't use that route and you sell something bigger or there's you're going to have to make more of an investment and it's a it's a much bigger play to actually get your stuff into an international market or if you're selling something that goes B2B, I usually recommend to people that they, they wait till they hit the $1 million mark to do it. Uh, and that is because you, you don't want to set yourself up to fail. You know, when you go international and it's going to be a big play and it's more than simply changing the address that you're selling your bikini or your soy candle or your sparkly earrings, um, 
to from, you know, an Aussie address to a US address or an address in Singapore. When it involves more than that, there's an outlay of time, money and energy that you've got to make. And so you want to make sure you've got the resources to do a really great job. So, I mean, um, at Duran and Associates, our real sweet spot is companies turning over 2 to $20 million because we know that in that bracket they've usually got enough resources and wherewithal so that we can make that international expansion a huge success. But, you know, from $1 million onwards, we take people on and we say, okay, you know, we can probably do this. So do you think that every business should probably have an international strategy as part of their plan? Not if you're a hairdresser. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Unless you're, you know, one of those internationally renowned hairdressers that have their own show on Netflix. I was going to say, <laughs> there, there are people who've done it. But no, look, I don't think every single business has to, right? So if you're a plumber or a mechanic or a hairdresser, no, you don't have to. And the reality is you are probably going to get the best business from people who uh, in your area, you can build a really great local business that way. But it's not to say that you can't. But I think, um, you know, uh, I spoke to a man recently who has a solution that creates clean water uh, out of, it's, you know, he's an engineering genius and um, I am not, so I can't really explain how the thing works, but it basically purifies water using solar power. And it's really amazing for settings where access to the electricity grid has been cut. Did you meet him in an Uber? I met a guy that was an Uber driver that had an eerily similar idea who was an engineer and was trying to get it off the ground. Was your Uber in Adelaide? Because I'm pretty sure this guy's based in Adelaide. <laughs> no, it was <laughs> Central Coast. <laughs> they need to talk to each other. <laughs> yeah, maybe they do. So look, for that guy, his core market's not going to be metropolitan Sydney. I mean, it might be Lismore at the moment with the way the rain keeps coming down, right? But most of the people who need what he has invented what he sells are going to be places you know based in places where like the wheels have fallen off for one reason or another so you know Ukraine would be somewhere that could probably use what he makes Africa parts of Asia um, parts of Latin America and so what I want to say is there is no one size fits all but for a lot of businesses it is going to make sense um, either because of what they sell or just because they can have such a, a massive impact if they do it overseas. If you think about it from a services point of view, one of my favourite examples is Aspen Medical. And they're an Australian company that provides um, a variety of health services, but usually often around emergency and critical care. And they have done some incredible projects. So um, they brought the first ambulance service to the United Arab Emirates. Now it's probably more than... 20 years ago now, because the founder was on the road from Dubai to uh, Abu Dhabi and there was this huge traffic jam of hundreds of cars and it was because there'd been a pileup involving about 40 cars and he was sitting in the car and he said to the people who was with, where are the ambulances? And they said, what do you mean? We don't have ambulances. And he realised, wow, there are probably people dying from road accidents needlessly because there are no ambulances. Um, he took the company there. They set up a joint venture. And I think, you know, they had a very significant uh, effect on reducing the number of deaths by road accident because they took something really amazing there. Now, Aspen's done tons of other things with Ebola. They've got a project, the um, joint venture project that I think is going on with Indonesia at the moment. They have stuff all over the world. So they're a great example of a company that's taken what they do well and they've exported it overseas 
Uh, and it's just done incredible things in terms of making people's lives better. It's that old entrepreneurial adage of, you know, find a problem and then fix it, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, with all the businesses that you work with, are you finding some some typical mistakes that they might have made before they come to you when they're thinking about going global? How long have you got? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, look, jokes aside, yeah, look, there are quite a few common ones. Uh, I will pick out maybe three of the top ones that I see. One that is really common is that people often have this thought bubble about wanting to go overseas and then they see potentially in a bunch of markets and they don't know which one they should go to and so they just act reactively and they kind of chase whatever whatever opportunities come in to them from, you know, the outside world rather than looking at the various markets and saying where is the largest opportunity, where is the lowest risk, and where can we make the most profit? Because it's really the, if you think of a Venn diagram with three circles, it's really the overlap between those three circles, opportunity, risk, and profitability, which is your sweet spot. And so that's a mistake that I see a lot because selecting a market and getting that choice of market right is really a crucial first step. Once you kind of say, we're going to pick a market, put a stake in the ground, we are, we'll still respond to inquiries if we come in, as they come in, but we're really going to just have uh, a laser beam strategy for one market and we're going to put all our energy and focus into that, it just frees up a lot of brain space and a lot of resources to really do one thing well. And so I think, you know, people fall victim to the excitement of an international project, an international possibility, and as a result they just try and do too many things simultaneously and it doesn't work as well as it could. So I think that's a key one that I see all the time. Um Another one that is a huge roadblock is that people are not clear on who their ideal international client is. And so, you know, you say, who is your ideal international client in, for example, Japan? You know, you're selling, maybe you're already selling stuff there and they kind of look at you and they say, I don't know. And that, that's a huge problem because if you don't know who you are selling to, it's virtually impossible to create marketing that reaches those people and that cuts through. And that is you know, with the level of marketing and advertising we're subjected to these days, um, that is super, super important. If you don't have a message that speaks directly to people's goals and challenges and desires as they relate to what you're trying to sell, you got a snowball's chance in hell of actually selling stuff. So that's another really big one that I see. Um, and I think what would I pick if I had to say a third one? I think um, lots of mistakes are made around um, building of teams and by that I mean um, putting together a team that belongs to your company overseas that can service your needs on the ground in another territory and that includes working with people like distributors who although they are not technically part of your team are effectively part of your team because they're your arms and legs on the ground in a country that you're going to going to go to and you know we see all different issues popping up around mm -hmm. that. So when people are thinking about expanding into a different territory, Australians um, used to often think China, China, you know, there's billions and billions of people in China. If we just get like 1% of those billions of people, you know, we'll be making megabucks. Like, <laughs> is China still a good option for Aussie brands? Does it really have to be the right kind of, kind of um, business? Look, I think it depends. I mean, it is also an incredibly competitive market. 
Um, and China's no longer the cheap and cheerful option. I mean, they're good quality cutting edge products are made there and where products are available in China. I mean, you, um, there's a guy who I follow on LinkedIn whose name now escapes me, but he writes about branding in China all the time. And he gave an example a few months ago of how he was at home one Saturday morning with his family and at about 11 o'clock in the morning there was a knock on the door and he's like, who is that? And he opened it and there were some guys standing there with a huge new flat screen TV and he's like, who ordered that this TV? And his wife said, oh, I ordered that at about 9 o'clock this morning. What? And, you know, um, <laughs> yeah, this is for real. And I'm like, holy cow. And so, you know, China's now, this, especially in metropolitan China, very, very competitive and people's expectations are just off the scale compared to what, we're used to you know if we order something in Australia and it takes a week to turn up <laughs> we're we like think, okay <laughs> That's fine I mean if it comes in three days we're like wow but I mean can you imagine ordering a tv and then there are men at your door two hours later ready to install it for you and set it up and do everything so, you <laughs> well, know, I would like that <laughs> that'd be great right but the question you have to ask is well can we actually compete in that environment and what would it take so I mean I'm not saying you should never do China and if look if the, you're an Australian brand and you're already well established there then you might find that it's it's actually completely fine and you can just keep on doing what you're doing. But my general advice on China, and even before, you know, some of the deterioration that we've seen in the Australia-China political relationship happened, even well before that, I would really query whether um, China is the right market for somebody who's just starting out in international markets because it's not you know, it's not straightforward. You know, there's a very big cultural gap between Australia and China. Doing business in China is not always um, super easy. Um, and essentially there are markets that you could choose that have a lot less potential but are far easier to do business in. And it's like, you know, if you're a kid starting to do gymnastics, you learn to do a somersault on the mat before you try and do a triple backflip on the balance beam. <laughs> yes. Fine. Right. It's the same kind of thing. You want to um, you want to set people up to succeed. So you want to get them to attempt a project that they actually can do. You want them to do the simpler thing first and get a good result and learn some things from that process and then take what they've learned and apply that to a more difficult project rather than getting distracted by the huge shiny object at the start, um, kind of, you know, leaping for the moon and crashing disastrously short because you just don't have the skills and capabilities that you need yet to get there. Yeah. You spoke a little bit um, then about the cultural differences. How important is it to be cognizant of cultural differences when you're going into a new international market? And what are some ways that, that you could bridge that gap? Oh, look, there is nothing more important um, that's probably that probably should have been one of the three mistakes that I mentioned, you know, previously. But no, look, it's really, really important, and so many business deals fall apart because the people on either side of the table just don't understand each other. And when there are gaps in their information and understanding, they make assumptions and they fill in the gaps with negative interpretations. And once you get into a cycle where both sides are interpreting what the other side does in a negative matter, manner, it just tends to spiral down. So I think it's vitally important before you go to do business anywhere else in the world that you, you really approach it understanding that you will be talking to people who are different 
and then be pleasantly surprised by the things that you have in common rather than assuming at the outset that you're pretty much the same, possibly because you're speaking the same language and then getting a shock when you find out that you're completely different. Great example of this is uh, Australia and the United States. I think that's probably one where a lot of mistakes are made both by Australians and by Americans. But, you know, Australians go off to the US and they say, well, you know, we've watched all the sitcoms. We know how it works in the States. Uh, and they get there and they find that the communication style is just entirely different and it can be really off-putting. And, you know, from the other side, I had a discussion with one of my clients just yesterday actually and uh, I was giving an example of, you know, Australia and the United States being closer than, for example, Australia and China and he shook his head and he said, no way, you know. Oh, no, I think what I'd said was, um, yeah, like people in Australia are relatively straightforward and they say what they you know, they say what they mean and they mean what they say. And he shook his head and he looked at me and he said, no way. And I said, what do you mean? He said, oh, there's all kinds of passive aggressive stuff going on down here and you have to like tread really, really carefully compared to the United States. So what I want to say here is, <laughs> I said, well, look, it's, it is all relative, right? Okay, you perceive a really big gap and you feel like it's quite different. But if you compare that to the gap between Australian culture and Chinese or Japanese culture or Middle Eastern culture, it's still a lot closer. But I guess, yeah, look, the point I want to make is it's all relative, but there's going to be difference and you have to go prepared to address that. In terms of how you do it, the first thing is really that recognition that it's going to be different. Um, the second thing I would say is do a lot of research. Do Expose yourself to that culture as much as you can. You know, watch documentaries, watch TV shows, read books, listen to podcasts, meet people from that culture join an industry association that deals with the country that you're going to, just do everything that you can to um, kind of soak yourself in the culture. And then um, thirdly, always try to stand in the other person's shoes. You know, when you get into a situation where you're dealing with that person across the table who's so different from you and something comes back at you that you feel offended by or mystified by or irritated by whatever it is instead of immediately jumping to your default setting and the way that you would react if somebody from your own culture had said or done that thing take a minute to try and just say nothing and stand back and think what is this person experiencing you know how are they seeing this and is it possible that how I'm interpreting what they've just said is actually not what they meant and I think if people did that more frequently you would probably see um, a lot less business deals fail and you probably actually see you know, a lot less political conflict. And I don't want to get into that. That's like a whole huge other topic. But, you know, you see political stuff coming up on the international stage and you think, I wonder how much of this went wrong because in the negotiation people just really didn't understand each other well enough. Yeah. Which brings me to the point of trust, um, brand trust. It's, it's hard enough getting brand trust in your own country. How do you get an overseas market to trust your brand? Well. I think, again, it depends where you go, right, because different cultures value different things when it comes to brands and they're motivated to trust brands by different things and, you know, not to bore everybody with um, just looking at the States and China, but I'm going to pick those two examples because they're two huge markets and they're two markets where quite a bit is known about what makes people trust brands. In the United States, People already have a lot of confidence in consumer products, how well they work and how safe they are, right? 
because there's a whole compliance regime around that. And so uh, people are willing to try things that are new and innovative. And in the United States, they prize innovation and newness. And that's why you see so many American products advertised with, you know, I think back to, you know, uh, laundry detergent or something, you know, the box with the red stripe on the diagonal across the corner saying new, improved. So that kind of thing resonates with an American audience. If you hop across to China, though, yeah, it's um, people are not nearly as impressed by novelty and innovation. And, look, I'm, I'm generalising here, so I'm sure people could jump up and cite examples where this doesn't apply. So I'm saying this is a general remark, but generally people want to know that they can trust the brand over a period of time. And some of that stems from the fact that, you know, you'll remember over the last 10 or 15 years or so, there've been a whole run of safety scandals in China, often around food products. And so a lot of the Chinese consumer market is like, wow, I'm not sure if I trust Chinese products anymore because look at all the things that, you know, went wrong, like exploding watermelons and um, tainted milk powder and, you know, all those other things. And so they're looking to a record, a brand with a record. And so uh, leveraging off history and tradition is a, a tactic that um, a lot of Chinese companies use. And what some Western companies have done is gone and kind of claimed an association with a Chinese brand that's already got cachet or um, pointed to their own long history. And I suspect that that's probably part of the reason why luxury brands from Western China have done so well because they can point, you know, Louis Vuitton or Yves Saint Laurent could point to this long history of being famous and everybody says, yeah, that's a brand that is well-respected. And I think the other thing uh, from the China point of view is that um, people value aspirational marketing. So where consumer sentiment is in China at the moment is probably, and again, this is a rough approximation, but it's probably similar to where U.S. consumer sentiment was back in the 80s. So do you remember the Coke ad back in the 80s that I think was an American one, but we had in Australia as well with all those people chasing that beach ball yes. at the at the beach yes. and pushing the big beach ball up? It was all very aspirational and the, the subtext of it was if you drink Coke, you will have a beautiful life mm-hmm. chasing yes. the beach ball, right? Coke is it. That's right. That's exactly right. If you ran that kind of marketing today in Australia, I think people would probably think it was a bit corny. <laughs> you know, they're like, what do you mean Coke is it? Is it really? But I think, uh, you know, I'm not saying you should take the Coke beach ball ad and put yeah. that into China, but there's more of uh, an aspirational mindset of um, rather than the features and benefits thing that we tend to do here, you know, buy this thing and you get these three features and these three benefits in China, it is more still about buy this thing and here is who you could become. I think the other thing that was interesting, what you were just saying before about like, you know, the brands like Louis Vuitton, uh, you know, pointing to their long history or other brands going in and going, making connections with with Chinese brands, for example. It, I'm just wondering partnerships and what kind of role do partnerships play when you're establishing yourself in an overseas market? Oh, look, I think partnerships are really important across a whole range of levels. It might be about brand credibility, but it is also just about connections on the ground and getting things done. So if you've started a company and grown it in your home market, then 
your customers have grown up with you, you've grown up with them, you understand them really well, you know how they tick, you know what they want, and it just creates this virtuous circle. But when you go to a new market, you don't really know your customers that well in all likelihood unless you have had the resources or the time and patience to do a ton of market research and your customers don't know and trust you. And so if you can partner with a firm that already has a good reputation in the local market, you get some of their credibility from that. And also they know how things work. You know, they know how the regulatory system works. They've got connections in their country or the state or their city. Uh, and they can just help you get things done better and faster. And it depends what kind of a partnership it is. But if you partner, for example, with a distributor, you know, suddenly if that distributor has 50 sales representatives, you've got 50 people who can go out and sell the product on your behalf rather than it just being one or two people from your office who can travel to the market maybe four times a year and maybe have 12 meetings between them. Suddenly with a distributor, you can have 200 or 1,000 meetings conducted on your behalf in that market. So I think that there are a range of partnerships, but um, what you can get from them varies enormously. But done well, I think they can be game-changing. I think a business would definitely have to visit their overseas market. They, they can't just do it from afar. They've got to be like either have a trusted expert on the ground or have visited the market and spent some time. Wouldn't say you have to, but I would say that in most cases you are going to get a much better result if you do because once you spend time on the ground, you you just understand how things work better. I mean, I'm thinking the example that's coming to my mind, we've got a great client at the moment who sells, um, and this company is from South Australia, it sells single origin 100% pure Australian honey and they are selling to Japan and at the moment they are still going through the process of working out who that ideal customer is and what that ideal customer is going to value and I know that when they get that opportunity to get on the plane and go off to Japan and stand in some Japanese supermarkets and look at all the different honeys that are on that supermarket shelf they are going to understand what they're competing against. They can look at how Japanese consumers are looking at the different honeys and what choices they're making. They can talk to some people in Japan about what they actually look for when they choose honey and it will just bring a whole new level of awareness for them about what they need to to actually get cut through in Japan with this amazing product, you know, and how to position that product so that people in Japan see it and they don't say, oh, this is just another jar of honey. They say, this is amazing Um, all-natural, single-source, pure Australian honey, and we need a jar of that. How about that um, Australian-made tick? How important is that for an overseas market? Uh, I think, again, it probably depends on the market, but I think that it it is important because we still have a reputation for being clean and clean and green. And look, that is, it is, it is interesting when you think about it, isn't it? Because sometimes where Australia is portrayed in the press is, hmm, we're not very doing very well on emissions, you know, <laughs> how clean and green are we really? But when it comes to food, we still do have this reputation that our, our um, food supply chain is secure and clean and quality. 
So I think it is important, you know, especially in the health and wellness space. If you have a product where, uh, so a while ago I worked with a company that made health supplements and they got all their product, their raw product from India, but the product was actually blended in Australia and so therefore they had the right to say that this was an Australian-made product. I think they probably would have had a lot more trouble selling that product if it had been blended and packaged in India because then it would have had to have said made in India and people would not have trusted that product to the same extent that they trust it seeing that little, you know, line on the packaging made in Australia. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? Um, what about pricing? The fi- I guess the final question I want to ask you is about how can you make sure that you're competitive with your price when um, you're selling overseas when you like you know how to price your your products in Australia, but in an in the international market, how do you gauge what the right price is to pitch your product? That is a that is a that is a great question. The long answer would take me about an hour and a half to give you. So let me give you the <laughs> one. There, uh, at a very general level, there are basically three ways that you can price a product. Three, and then there are sophisticated versions that I won't go into, but the three general ways are you can um, price it based on cost plus, and that is your cost to make and sell the product plus a margin on top. You can price by looking at competitor pricing and seeing what your competitors sell for and placing yourself in somewhere in the middle of that pack. And you can price on value, which has nothing to do with how much it costs you to make the, the product and to sell it. But uh, it's all about how much value the consumer or the customer or the client sees in that product and the value that they will get from using it. So there are three quite different strategies. And in my opinion, you get the best result when you actually combine all three. You triangulate all three. So firstly, you look at how much does it cost us to make and uh, sell this thing internationally and that gives you a floor gives you a a price below which you can't drop without losing money that's really important then you look at what's the the range that competitors are selling for because that also then gives you a range and you can decide if you want to put yourself at the bottom of the range in the middle or beyond the top end if you have a very luxury product Um, and you then understand where you sit in the pack and how your product can be differentiated from other people's products. And then the third thing you do is you look at, well, what what value does this represent to the consumer in that market? And once you've found that out, then you basically triangulate those three pieces of information, and that will give you a sense, you know, with three data points of about what your price should be. That's fantastic advice, Cynthia. If I was about to go overseas with the product, at least now I'd know (laughs) what to price it at, (laughs) which I would not have known before this conversation. Absolutely. (laughs) Thank you so much. It's been lovely chatting to you today. I I think um, this podcast is going to be really invaluable for anyone that's got their eye on an overseas market because you always have fantastic advice. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Thank you.